if you will. And um, we're going to continue our series tonight, Living in the Fear of the Lord. And so uh, Brother Kevin Clark's going to preach for us, and so we look forward to that and hope everybody will, will come back. Uh, Mark uh, Townsend changed the batteries in the microphone. So he said, Kevin's going to be preaching tonight, so we're going to get fresh batteries in there so they won't die. And so uh, we're all set. We're all set for that. Also, I noticed that Jared said after the last song, we'll have the sermon of the hour. That doesn't mean the sermon's going to last an hour, but uh, just during the hour of worship. And so I say all of that, I uh, say part of that at least, to work our way into the sermon this morning. I, if you know me, and most everybody knows me here pretty well, I, I like a good joke. Uh, I like, uh, uh, you know, a, a witty comment. Uh, I like a funny story. And uh, I think every good speaker uses some humor in their speaking, in their presentation. It's an uh, effective way to teach. It's an effective way to make, make a point. Now, the Bible is not an especially funny book. But every now and then, as you read through, you'll read, come across something that makes you smile a little bit, uh, make you maybe chuckle a little bit, and sometimes it, it might just make you laugh. For example, Jesus criticized the Pharisees as straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so if you think about that a little bit, how, how ridiculous that is, straining a gnat or swallowing a camel, just maybe think that those who first heard Jesus say that, must have kind of chuckled and said, yeah, yeah, that, that's right. That's exactly what those Pharisees are like. When you read about Balaam and his donkey, you, you, gotta, you just got to smile. Uh, you, uh, Balaam is, is riding his donkey and the Lord is hindering the donkey, remember? And eventually the donkey starts to talk and Balaam, he just starts talking back to the donkey like there was not anything unusual about it. And just kind of, kind of chuckle at, at his lack of understanding and, and perception. I think the comment in Genesis chapter 11, when the people are building this, this tower, the Tower of Babel, building it up, it's going to reach into heaven, and, and they're in the process of building that. It's going up and up and up. And then the text says, and, and God came down to see what they were doing. That, that's a little humorous, isn't it? Here's man's greatest efforts to reach heaven, and so God has to look down as high and lofty and exalted as he is. He's got to look down to see what they're doing. There's little puny ants down here on the earth. Let's see what they're up to. Well, Acts chapter 19, we come across kind of a funny story. It's, it's humorous to me anyway, and, and we're going to draw out from it some, you know, some important lessons takes place in the city of Ephesus. Now, this is Paul's third journey. He visits Ephesus on his second journey, but he doesn't stay very long. He's sort of in a hurry, so he just spends a little bit of time there and passes through, and then on with his, uh, on with his trip back home. But on his third journey, he goes back to Ephesus, and he spends about three years there, which is a long time for Paul. You know, Paul doesn't stay in one place very long. He'll go and he'll He'll, he'll stay for, for in a place for a while. He teaches the gospel, get things started, and then it's off to his next place. Now, Ephesus was an important city, very important city at that, at that time. It was important commercially. There was an important harbor there. There were ships bringing their goods in and people bringing their goods to Ephesus to have them shipped on to other places. 
It lay along an important east-west trade route into the interior of what is today modern-day Turkey. It was the most important commercial city in the region at that time. It was important politically as well. The seat of government for that region, for that area, was located in Ephesus. There was a library there. There was a theater there. As you know, if you've studied Acts chapter 19 very much, there was a theater there, a coliseum, and a very active marketplace. So it was important commercially. It was important politically. It was important religiously as well. The great temple of Artemis was there. And some of the ruins still stand. It was considered at its time one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, a little bit later, there was a large temple dedicated to the Caesar there as well. Now, that was built 89, 90. That was after Paul was there by several years. But gives you some insight into the, into the importance of the city to that area, to that, to that region. And so Paul goes to Ephesus, this is A.D. 53 to 55. His efforts begin with 12 men who had been instructed only in the baptism of John. They knew a lot about Christ, but instructed only in the baptism of John. He rebaptizes them. And then that's the beginning of the church there, as far as we know, beginning of the church there. Eventually, he goes to the synagogue. He teaches for a period of time there. Doesn't get as good a result, and so he finds a place in the school of Tyrannus. And as a result of that, verse 10 tells us, all who live... All who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so Paul is very successful in his work in in Ephesus. Starts with these 12 men, finds a place in this school of Tyrannus, and as a result of his work there, all in Asia, that's, that's a wide range of territory, all in Asia heard the word of the Lord. At the end of the chapter, the last half of the chapter, read about Paul encountering the, the silversmiths, you remember, and the, the riot and the uproar that resulted from that conflict. What I want to do is talk about the episode right in the middle. And uh, begin in, we're going to begin in verse 11, and we're going to read down through several verses. Now, this is kind of a funny story in a way, and we'll try to bring that out. These are some of the ruins of the city of Ephesus that you can see today. And so just imagine this taking place. Imagine that in your mind. Paul in a place like this, wouldn't have been in ruins at that time, and people milling around and doing their business and going from one place to another. And, and, then, and then this episode takes place. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so one of the features of Ephesus, was it was a center for magic, center for magicians, like Simon the sorcerer, for example. He lived in Samaria. Maybe people like him in the city of Ephesus. And archaeologists have discovered a collection of spells and incantations and chants Notice they known as the Ephesian Gramada. And so this is just uh, the this magic spells, the words, the incantations that these magicians would use to cast their spells. And so there are a lot of these kinds of people in the city of Ephesus. 
In this particular case, some Jewish exorcists, you see that in verse 13, some Jewish exorcists had uh, heard the name of Jesus being used in connection with casting out demons, no doubt by Paul. So they thought, we'll use the name of Jesus. And it's just, they're using it just as a, a name, as a magic word or a magic name, the name of one of the gods. The gods' names were often used in these kinds of practices. And so here's another supernatural being, and you will use his name in our attempt to cast out demons. But it doesn't, it's, it's not an appeal to Christ on the basis of faith and one's relationship with Christ. It's simply the name Jesus is a device that a person might use, that they were going to use to cast out demons. Now, I won't say a whole lot about this, but demon possession was a real thing in the first century. It's distinguished from sickness in the New Testament. And so Jesus heals people from their illnesses and casts out demons. And so this is not a physical illness. This is something altogether different. An agent of Satan enters into an individual and controls his actions, sometimes to very severe effects. And so you can read about occasions in the New Testament where a spirit would throw somebody down or throw them in the fire or make them have convulsions or tear their flesh. And so sometimes the effect of the demon was very severe. There are some, Jesus says, among the Jews who cast out demons. When Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, he says, well, if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, who, by whom do your sons cast them out? And so apparently there were some Jews who cast out demons or, or were trying to cast out demons at least. Uh, and so demon possession was, was very real. And Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, in the judgment day, some will have claimed to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, but they're, uh, they'll, they'll be rejected nonetheless in judgment. Depart from me, I never knew you. And so here these men attempt to cast out demons by using the name of Jesus as a magic word. And so, verse 13, they would say to someone possessed with the demon, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so that was the, you know, that was the incantation or the spell or whatever however you want to describe it. I adjure you by the name of Jesus. And so they thought when the demon heard the name Jesus, just that word, well then that would have power over, over them. But that's not what happened. <laughs> Look at verse 14. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Can't you see that in, you know, in your own mind's eye? That the, the man with the demon is saying, now, now I know Jesus, you know. And sure enough, the demons do know Jesus. They understand that Jesus is the Holy One. They call Him that. And so the demon says, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but I got no idea who you guys are. And then he, he jumps on, it's one against seven, by the way. He jumps on them, and he's ripping their clothes off, and they're, ah, they're running out. You know, that's a funny story. <laughs> it is to me, anyway. 
these people thought they had power over the demons. In fact, the demon, just one demon had power over them. The people who saw it and heard about it must, must have laughed. And that kind of story would be repeated over and over again, wouldn't it? Now, the people who saw that must have gone home and said, you won't believe what I saw today, and then recount the story, what happened. The result was the event became known to all, and fear fell upon all, and the name of Jesus was magnified, and many turned to the Lord. You see that in verses 17 through 20. As I think Luke is telling us this story, it has a, a note of humor about it. But it has some very important lessons to be learned from it, doesn't it? Some really strong lessons. And so we're just going to draw out two or three. First of all, Paul, Paul, this, this event establishes the truth of the gospel, right? It establishes the power of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Who, who, who is subdued and overpowered? Well, the, the seven sons of Sceva, Sceva these, these Jewish exorcists who are trying to use the name of Jesus in an inappropriate way, they're subdued and overpowered, and it's the name of Christ that prevails and is magnified as, as a result. And so verse 17, it became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. And so Paul is establishing the power of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus, and he's denying the power of, of really any, anything else. And that happens in multiple ways in the city of Ephesus. There, there are multiple religious errors to be dealt with in Ephesus. And this, this one deals with these Jewish exorcists who, it seems, tend to combine maybe elements of Judaism and paganism. And they use the name of Jesus in an inappropriate way, kind of like the pagans would use the names of the gods. But again, the episode demonstrates the truth of Christ and the gospel. There are similar episodes in Acts chapter 13 and verse 8. Elamus is stricken blind. He's, he's a magician. And Paul strikes him blind. And so again, the power of the gospel, the power of Christ is being shown and the lack of power of this approach, this magic approach is being demonstrated. We also see it in Acts chapter 8. Simon the sorcerer. Here's the gospel. He sees the works of Philip, and, and he becomes a Christian. And so Paul establishes the truth of Christ over magic and other rivals. It's, you know, you might be thinking, well, you know, Brother Bob, wait, we don't really deal with magic anymore in our, in our culture. Well, maybe not as much, more, more today than a generation ago, though. And it may be more in the coming years than it is today. And so as people reject the gospel and uh, reject uh, the knowledge of God and reject the scriptures and, and what the scriptures say, as more and more people in our culture turn away from those things, something is going to fill the void. And so if you refuse to have God in your knowledge, Romans chapter 1, they turn, turn to the creature rather than the creator. Many people are going to turn to magic and new age sort of things. And, that, and so we're going to reject the gospel. Something's got to take its place. We just have a tendency toward the spiritual, have a tendency to think there's something greater, there's a power greater than us out there. And more and more people will turn 
Not everybody, but more and more people will turn to things like this. So just remember these stories, how these stories impress upon us the power of the gospel. It's a superior power to any other power, even these magicians. In the first part of the chapter, Paul encounters 12 men who knew only the baptism of John. And so verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus, found some disciples, and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And so Paul teaches them, he shows them the way of the Lord more accurately, and he baptizes them in the name of Christ. The point is that Paul doesn't allow this mistake to go uncorrected. So he goes to the city of Corinth. There are some, they're called disciples. There are disciples there. Maybe they're like Apollos. Remember, Apollos knew a great deal about the Lord. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught accurately things concerning Jesus. But he was acquainted only with the baptism of John. So maybe these people were like Apollos. And so they're doing a lot of things right. Their knowledge is accurate. They've made some important decisions in their life. But here's, here's an aspect that's not right. They knew only the baptism of John. Well, Paul doesn't say, well, you're right about most things. We just won't worry about that detail. He, he doesn't say, well, you're pretty close. And so we just, we just over... Now, he corrects it, doesn't it? And so here's what might appear to be a small thing in some ways. They know only the baptism... Now, they had been baptized, but they know only the baptism of John. And yet Paul doesn't allow that mistake to go uncorrected. They were close to the truth... But Paul takes them, explains the way of the Lord more accurately to them to use language that's found in Acts chapter 18, and they respond. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and so forth. All right, so here's another error, a mistake that Paul addresses and, and corrects. Here's another uh, point along those lines. Verse, verse uh, 8, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. He withdrew from them, took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And so Paul is going into the synagogue and teaching. And of course, he's facing their religious error, isn't he? And with the gospel, this becomes religious error, Judaism. And we know what Paul does in synagogues. We learn that from Acts chapter 13. He goes in, he takes the scriptures, he uh, talks about God's plan as it's revealed through the scriptures. He leads people right up to, to Christ and then teaches them the gospel. And so that's what Paul is doing. We have every confidence that that's what Paul is doing. And remember Acts 17 and 18 says that he uh, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. He's reasoning with them from the Scriptures, explaining, giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And so here he is going into the synagogue, and he's trying to bring people to Christ. And you know what he's doing. He's saying, well, you know, here's what the Scriptures say here, and this has fulfilled, and somebody might object, and he answers that objection, well, this is what the Scriptures say, and, and so forth. And so, and so he's teaching and answering and reasoning with people about the kingdom of God. He's establishing the truth of Christ. 
And then in verses 23 through 40, we find him just facing outright paganism. <laughs> you know, here are the worshipers of uh, Artemis or Diana, and they have a monetary, uh, uh, monetary uh, uh, interest in all of this. But, but there are lots of worshipers in, uh, of Diana, and so this great uproar uh, occurs because of Paul's teaching. He, he, Demetrius knew exactly what Paul was teaching. <laughs> he said that uh, he's calling into question the, the legitimacy of worshiping Artemis. And so he, Paul, he knew what Paul was teaching about. That Paul is establishing the truth. You know, if I were running for office, I speak as one who's lost his senses, but <laughs> if I were running for office, if I were going to put on a good campaign, I would have to do two things. I'd have to out, lay out my agenda. My, this is what I hope to accomplish. If I'm elected, this is what I want to accomplish. And I, I lay that out point by point by point. And sometimes you run across people or hear about candidates, and that, they say, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to positive lay out my agenda. But, but really, that's not enough, is it? Because what I need to do is, is also not only lay out my agenda in a positive way, but I need to show how my opponent's agenda falls short. Now, his agenda promotes this. Now, let me tell you why that's a bad idea. And his, and his, what he wants to do is accomplish this. Now, let me tell you the weakness of that. And so, here's what I want to do. That's why you ought to elect me. And these are the problems with my opponent. Now, you don't have to be mean-spirited about it. You don't have to get personal about it. You don't have to call people names and things like that. But, but that's, how, that's how you would win over votes. And you know, that's what we do as well. Here's the gospel. We present it in a positive way. Here's what the New Testament teaches. Here's the correct doctrine as taught in the New Testament. Now, here are some other ideas. Now, this is where they fall short. And this is a problem with this doctrine. And this is how this is not consistent with Scripture. And here's how this idea is inconsistent with Scripture. And we don't have to be mean and ugly about it. We don't have to call people names and things like that. But we need to do both of those. We need to present the gospel and we need to show where what is contrary to the gospel falls short. Now, that's what Paul's doing in the city of Ephesus. Takes these 12 men, presents the gospel to them, but he explains to them where the baptism of John fell short. He corrected that, and they responded well. And he does that consistently throughout, throughout uh, really throughout his, his teaching. And so we need to do that as, as well. And so we need to establish the truth of the gospel and show how it is contrary to things that are inconsistent with the gospel and be specific in that from time to time. The second point is this. Those who are convinced of truth turn from error to truth. And so they hear Paul preaching, they see this event here with the seven sons of Sceva, and they see that, they see the truth, and so they leave whatever they're with and they turn to the truth and embrace the truth. There are two good examples of that here at Acts chapter 19. The twelve men who knew only the baptism of John and so Paul talks to them, talks to them about the baptism of John, talks to them about baptism in the name of Christ. They, they listen, they consider what he has to say, they make a decision. You know, he's right about that. He's right in what he's teaching, and they do it. 
Now, there's a difference between those two things, isn't it? There, there's a difference between acknowledging that something is right. You know, he's right about that. And then, and then doing it. You may have talked to people and maybe looked at the New Testament, showed them passages about the importance of baptism, and, and they may say, you know, you know, I can see that. I can see what you're saying. Where you do it, well, you know, well, you know, and, well, that's okay. You know, there's two different things. Seeing what's right and then making a commitment to do what's right, that, that's what we need to do. And so that's, that's the first illustration of this point in this passage. There's another illustration as well in connection, more directly in connection with the seven sons of Sceva. Let's go down to verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them and found, found it uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. That's, that's a lot of money. Exactly what that is, but that's a lot of money. You know, in the first case, the 12 men, you know, they, they had made some strong commitments. They had decided to be disciples of Jesus. Whatever the cost was, sometimes that's very costly in a person's life. It might affect their relationship with their family or their friends or their business. But they had made that decision. Here's, here's a point that we need, to, that we need to, to change our behavior and our thinking and our practice on this baptism uh, subject. But in this case, these people are making life-altering fundamental changes. And so they, that's it. becoming a Christian demanded of them that they give up their magic practice altogether. They make a clean break with it, and a complete break with it. And their commitment is so strong, they take their magic books and bring them and burn them. We're breaking with the past altogether. And so, and so their change is fundamental, life-altering, life-changing. But they did it. Yeah, that's the point. They did it. And uh, at great cost to themselves. And so you can see in this, in this passage, those who were convinced of the truth of the gospel acted upon it. They turned from error to truth. And we need, that's what we need to do. We need to turn from error to truth. And really it's a lifelong process, isn't it? Now it might be that we're in a point in our life where we need to make fundamental life-altering commitments. I need to just change my life and devote myself to Christ. And even if that means that costs me in some way, I need to do that. Or it may be we're further along than that. We say, you know what? Uh, I, I haven't been thinking correctly about some of these things. I, I, I need to change that. It's a lifelong process. But when we learn the truth, we need to do the truth. I remember growing up uh, as, a, as a boy, uh, you know, my daddy was a preacher, and uh, the, my mom and dad were Christians, and I, I was raised up kind of like Roger was, going to gospel meetings and, and all of that. But my dad, in his youth, we would ask him, well, Daddy, where did you go to church? And he'd say, well, we didn't go very much. And I think he was just a, a, re a regular guy for, you know, that those, those uh, formative years on into young adulthood. And we might, we might hear him preaching about this subject or that subject and get in the car on the way home and, well, well Daddy, did you ever do this? And he would say, this is what I want you to, to, to take note of, he would say, you know, I did a lot of things because I, I didn't know any better. But when I learned better, I did better. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? We, we might do a lot of things just because we don't know any better. We might know better in some cases, but we might just not know any better. 
But when we learn better, we need to do better. Well, that's what these people were doing, the 12 men who knew only the baptism of John. When they learned better, they did better. And, and the, the magicians who burned their books, when, when, they may not have known any better as magicians, but, but when they learned better, they did better. And so that's, a good, that's just a good approach. It might require repentance. The magicians illustrate very well what repentance requires of us. It might require that life-altering, life-changing decision, but if that's, if that's truth, we need to turn from error to truth. And then there's one other point we'll make quickly. The result of these things is that the Word of God is magnified. That's verse 20. So the Word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. It's kind of like Acts chapter 13 and the encounter uh, that Paul had with, with Elamus, you remember, and he struck him blind. And the result of that was, uh, this is Acts chapter 13 and verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Paul struck him blind, but what he was amazed at is the teaching of the Lord. Do the miracles of, did the miracles of the New Testament sort of have you know, authority and, and drawing power in themselves, or are they subordinate to and in support of the Word and the preaching of the Lord? It's the second, isn't it? We get caught up in the miracles, we get caught up in the power, we get caught up in the drama of the situation, we get caught up in, in those seven men running out, you know, and naked and wounded. And, but, but really, it's the Word that ought to get primary focus. The miracle is done in support of the Word and not vice versa. Here's some, some of what the New Testament says about the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, God has chosen through the foolishness of preaching or the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The gospel is God's power to salvation. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word. It's the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James chapter 1 and verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, 22 and 23, we're born again through the word of God. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 16, Paul refers to his teaching as the word of life. That is, the word brings life. That The teaching brings us life. Uh, in uh, Acts chapter 20, in verse 32 there, the word of God will build us up, will, will edify us and give us inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The implement through which the Spirit works is the word. The Word is the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25, the church is made glorious by the washing of water with the Word. No wonder the early disciples went about preaching the Word. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4. It's a vital part of the Great Commission. Go preach the gospel to every creature. Preach the gospel, preaching, preaching the Word, preaching the gospel is vital. And in every case in conversion in the New Testament, there is a teacher teaching the Word. It's not accomplished without the Word being taught. Some minimize the importance of the Word of God. They're guided by their feelings or emotions or intuitions, their opinions or the opinions of others. But 
But it's only the Word that will save. And so we don't want to minimize it. We don't want to overlook or neglect the importance of the Word. Psalm 119, verse 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my... What's, what's going to guide me? It's the Word, the Word of God. And so we need to give due respect and consideration to the Word. The result of this was that the Word of God was magnified. And so that's what we're committed to here at Oak Mountain. Since the Word of God is so important in the plan of salvation, we're committed to teaching the Word, to proclaiming the Word, to, to publicly uh, pronouncing the Word here in this place and in other places as well. Now, we don't attempt to do everything that churches are doing across the face of the country. We're not trying to meet all the needs of the community as a church, but we are trying to preach the Word in season and out of season and build people up in the Word. It's so vital in God's plan of salvation. That's what we're trying to do. You see that reflected here. In the end, final analysis, the Word is what was magnified. And people heard it, believed it, and followed Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunity to come before you today. and We recognize, Father, your great power, your, your wisdom, your might. We recognize the great love that you have toward us and the grace that you've shown toward us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the Word of God that you've revealed to us. We're thankful that you've preserved it for us, that we have access to it, that we can study it and learn it, and that it will indeed be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Help us, Father, to see the truth that you would have us to know. See it in your Word. Help us, Father, to, to do it, even if that means that we have to turn from things that we pre previously believed or been involved in. Help us, Father, to have just a, an overriding interest in doing truth. Help us to see it and help us to do it. And Father, we pray that in all things the Lord will be magnified and, and your word will be magnified and have free course in our lives and help us, Father, to take that message of salvation, take that word and spread it to others so they too can enjoy the blessings that you've promised us in that word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not a